one of my big areas of coaching is systemic coaching, which is where you're working with the client being the system rather than the individual. And that's a really powerful way of working. And often I do get invited into organizations, therefore, just to look at what are the systemic dynamics? What do we need to attend to that would improve the free flow of energy in the system? You know, ensuring that people are in their responsibility or in their authority and taking decisions for the good of the system, for the good of the whole. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way, to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoyed the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello, today I'm talking with and learning from Michael Cahill. Now, this isn't the podcast I thought we were recording, and it's not the interview that Michael thought he was going to give, but we had a great conversation. So he's going to come back and do the other one. So Michael spent 16 years in the city of London as an equity analyst, and for 10 of those years, he was on the number one rated sell-side team at UBS. He's good at maths, loves spreadsheets, loves evaluating businesses. He said uh, said in our conversation, look, he said, you know, this is it, I, this is a great job. I was meeting CEOs, big companies, getting involved in some great conversations. But ultimately he decided there was more to life than spreadsheets. And now he works as a coach and a facilitator and a trainer. He's an expert in neuro-linguistic programming, NLP. And we talked today about his other specialist subject, which is sort of systemic coaching. And we talk about his energy model and how making decisions with the right energy can make all the difference. So we were going to talk about valuation and what drives valuation and his highly acclaimed The Financial Times Guide to Making the Right Investment Decisions and his book called Market Matters about valuation. But we don't talk about any of those things. He's In fact, he's been gracious enough to come back and he'll talk to me again in a coming weeks about about those models. Today, we talk about how you build a business, what leadership looks like, how you make decisions, how you become more strategic. Great conversation. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. I'm Michael Cahill. I live in Southeast London in Blackheath, and I'm a coach and facilitator. And those are fairly um, catch-all categories for what I do. But my background is in uh, investment as an, in, as an equity analyst. So I know a lot about the investment side of things. I spent 16 years in the city as an analyst, uh, 10 years in a number one rated team at UBS Warburg, uh, now UBS, of course. And since leaving the city, I've really been involved in sharing an understanding of the city and valuation. And that's developed into really most of my time now being around coaching, training, 
leadership workshops, facilitating workshops, um, often around strategy and purpose. And what types of clients do you typically work with? Or maybe even do you prefer to work with? <laughs> it varies a lot. Um, I prefer to work with people who want to think differently. I remember a very senior client who was a non-exec director of a large organization saying to me, Michael, people will use you if they really want to th are serious about thinking differently. If they're not serious about thinking differently, you're not right for them and they're not right for you. And I, and I think it's important, you know, that people really do appreciate having a perspective and being prepared to shift and think differently about things, especially in the environment we're in. So clients who genuinely are up for the change, you know, they're up for moving on. They realise that what they're, you know, and it's not remedial. It's not that they're doing anything wrong. It's just that there's many things they could be doing a lot better. Uh -huh. and, and they know that. And they're just really keen to embrace what they could be doing differently. Um, but I work across a number of sectors, kind of large and small. I, I found recently that a lot of my work is more with entrepreneurial and founder-led organizations. Um, I think that that startup phase, they often require a certain amount of input. And I'm also interested in the founding of businesses and the dynamics and, and the energy in which a business is founded. I think that's really important, you know, that the, the energy and the founder is really respected. And what are the, you know, one of my big areas of coaching is systemic coaching, which is where you're working with the client being the system rather than the individual. And that's a really powerful way of working. And often I do get invited into organizations, therefore, just to look at what are the systemic dynamics what do we need to attend to that would improve the free flow of energy in the system? You know, ensuring that people are in their responsibility or in their authority and taking decisions for the good of the system, for the good of the whole. As opposed to ego? Or yes. I mean, you know, if you're working with an individual and the focus is on the individual, the danger is as you re re get recruited to work at an ego level. And if something's going wrong in an organization, there's a stat by a great organizational development guru in the United States, W. Edwards Deming, and all of his work suggests that when things aren't quite working in an organization, 85% of that relates to the system. 15% relates to the individual. Uh -huh. And what tends to happen in most organizations is we try and cure the individual, <laughs> you know, or scapegoat the individual or blame the individual rather than say what's happening systemically that this behavior lets us know something's not quite right. But it's not about blaming that individual. I think it's very easy to leap into kind of someone who's responsible here. Yeah. And we start a blame thing rather than saying, well, what, what are the conditions? What is there a repeating pattern here that we just need to look at in a non-judgmental way? Let's take judgment out of this. Let's take the drama of the story out of it as well. And let's just see. I mean, you know, I think if we were thinking about one thing that I know now that 
I didn't realize when I was earlier in my career. And there's many, there's many things. I think that's why I do this work is that there's lots of things I wish I had known. Uh-huh. <laughs> but one of them is, is it's, you know, in business, and I think often in life, it's not personal. And yet we make it personal, you know, and we blame someone or, you know. Or take... even blame even blame ourselves. Yes, indeed. The sort of guilt and judgment. Yeah. And I think that's precisely the conditions in which you don't get the best out of people. Yes. And I see it all the time where somebody's got a job title and that job title then comes with expectations that they've put on themselves or others put on them. And that the way in which people are perceiving that job that needs to be done is not how they would be playing to their best. And there's, but they don't have any vocabulary around it. So people are just struggling. And then of course, if they've been hired to do that, often the organization will hire somebody who looks and feels and smells and sounds exactly like the person who failed and they'll fail again. Yes. <laughs> Yeah. Which is, you know, it's system- there's a systemic problem here, not a per- people problem. Exactly. In systemic work, we call it the ejector seat syndrome, where it just keeps happening. And it doesn't matter how good the person you've recruited in is, the ejector seat throws them out at the appropriate time period. And of course, it's impossible for them to step into the authority of the position, because when the preceding person left, it probably wasn't acknowledged you know, and their contribution wasn't acknowledged. So then the new person can't be in their authority. Uh-huh. And I think that another aspect of what you're saying, which I think is really important, is that people over-identify with the job title. You know, and if you think about this just from a linguistic perspective, people will say, I am CEO. Yeah. Rather than what I would encourage them, you know, when I'm working in a coaching capacity, I encourage them to say, no, I am occupying the role of CEO. That's a very different energetic feeling, hasn't it? I mean, it just sounds very different. Whereas I am CEO is going to allow my ego to be attached to the position. If I I ever lose that job, I'm in real trouble. Yeah. Because my ego and identity has been attached to the role. Whereas... I am occupying the role means that there were people before me and I want to honour that. And there will be somebody after me and I want to leave the position in as good a shape as possible for the person who comes after me as well. And that's a systemic frame on it, you know. And I think one of the key leadership things, I think for me at any rate, is, you know, what great leaders do is they really know when to come from the position and when to come from their person, who they are who they really are, and they know how to do that. They've got a real sense that actually, you know, this is the responsibility of the position. There's some difficult decisions to be taken. Because if you think about this distinction, when there's difficult decisions to be taken, often the person who's taking the decision then reverts to their person and finds it very, very difficult to take the decision, whereas it's much easier to take the decision from the position because the position is responsible for the health of the organization. As you were talking, winding you back a little bit, I was just thinking about startups that scale and that person and person and position is very different. And so often the challenge is the business gets bigger. We had these six people who at the time were great and they all wore multiple hats. And as we get bigger, somebody needs to be 
head of sales or something, some job, and they can no longer do that job well enough to hold on to the position for the good of the organization, we need to bring somebody else in. And so often if they've, if they've, if they've attached themselves to that role, you know, like the five man business and the CEO, CEO, they've all, they've all given themselves, they've all given themselves the C-suite titles at the beginning. And it's very, then it's very hard for people to, to step back from that. Um, very hard. Especially when they've been in the beginning and that's why I advise it's we don't want your ego hitched to the position. You know, it's a role you're occupying. And certainly from a coaching perspective, I find people often find it a real relief. Oh, yeah. You know, it's just much, much easier. And then it frees them up. And yes, and I think in that situation where you've got five people and then you bring in new people, or if you, and the, the other key thing is, is if you've got those five people and you give them a new role, Again, you've got to be very clear how that new role relates to the purpose and founding of the business. Yes. Because otherwise you create another ejector seat problem where this role has been created because you haven't wanted to lose somebody, but there's no real purpose to it. Yes. And then when you were talking about, you know, the difficult conversations are have it from the role, not from the person. You know, if so, you know, if I'm the CEO, this is the thing. Uh, the CEO now has to have this conversation with you, Michael. So the CEO will have it. It's easier for me to get less stressed about that. Exactly. You could even do the same thing. One of the things I talk to salespeople about is, you know, if somebody sort of a client tries to negotiate a deal, again, the salesperson can say, well, we have a policy that we can't do that. And again, it's it's playing it, it's it's this sort of organisational structure power, structural power card, and often people will go, oh, "Okay, well, if you have a policy, yes, <laughs> there's not there's nothing either of us can do about it, and we'll move on." Whereas, otherwise, it, the salesperson has to take it on as a person and go, "God, I really, you know, I, I really want to help him." And so, again, you you coach that with salespeople to get them to to step as a the person and the role are are separate things. Yes, and then the policy is something else. Yeah, yeah, that's. I really like that. And there's nothing we can do about that. Just that's just the policy. Yeah, the framework about here we've been talking about a little bit about energy and the the people and the role, the person and the role are separate things. Where, what's that? Where did, where did you learn that? What is this thing that you speak of? <laughs> <laughs> there's two ways in which I've learned it. I mean, in terms of the energy and the founding energy, a lot of this comes from NLP neurolinguistic programming that and I think it's a really important piece that often what's really important when we take a decision is not so much the decision itself but the energy in which we take that decision so for example if I use a well St Andrews you know the the open championship's just been played uh, I, I'm not a golfer but I understand when Tiger Woods did win um, many years ago there. It was one of the best examples of plotting his way around the course ever. Uh-huh. And someone said to him, I understand your weakest shot is the bunker shot. So you must practice that a lot. And he just said, well, why on earth would I do that? Why on earth would I practice that? I practice staying on the fairway. <laughs> And it's a really beautiful distinction because I think it's true in businesses as well. You know, when we talk about competitive advantage and valuation, 
stay doing what you're good at. Don't try and get good at something that you'll never be good at. Yes. And so the way I would put it is if I'm standing on the tee at St. Andrews and all I'm thinking about is the fact that I'm no good at bunker shots and I'm saying to myself, don't go in the bunker. There's a blue elephant on the fairway. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm going to go in the bunker because my energy, and I'm not, and these aren't sort of necessarily fancy things, but you know it yourself that once I start focusing on the bunker rather than the fairway, my body will get a little tense. You know, then I'm not going to play the shot as well. And it's the same with decision making. If I say at all costs, we must avoid X, Y and Z, that's the energy I'm putting into the decision. And that's what I will attract. But crucially, I won't take a good decision because all I'm focusing on is on what I don't want. You know, what Tiger is saying to us is focus on what you do want, which is I want to be on the fairway. And more specifically, I want to be on that precise point on the fairway. So getting really clear about what we do want. And again, I think that's one of the things that I've really learned through coaching and NLP is that we want to be in the energy of the solution, not the energy of the problem. And I think what happens in a lot of organisations um, and dare I say, I don't want to make this t terribly political and it's whatever one's views of it. I think Brexit was a decision that was very much taken in the spirit of being clear about what we didn't want. Yep. Everybody was clear about what they didn't want, but nobody agreed. Th well, 30 million people knew they didn't want something. Those 30 million people all didn't want something else. Didn't, they were all different things that they didn't want. Yes. Yes. And I think in a leadership position, you, know, you are responsible for creating this vision of the future. You're creating something you're moving towards, that you're building, because it's then a positive energy. It's interesting. I, after I heard you speak, when I talk about core values with clients, I say, okay, these values have to be towards something, not away from something, because then the energy and the values is, is in the right direction. And that, that makes it slightly harder for people, but I think that is really important because this is the basis on which we're going to build the business. Yes. And we want that to be something we're creating. We're creating together. We're moving towards. And it's not something we're avoiding. Yes which has got a very different energy to it. And I think these things are important. And I think when I share this, I mean, even if I share it with, you know, leadership teams who will know nothing about some of the coaching work and some of the concepts we're talking about, but instinctively they really get it. You know, they just kind of go, oh. Well, it's, it, I, the example I use is, look, there are no shortage of gyms, fitness books and diets. And yet not everybody is as thin or as fit as they would like to be. And that away from can get you so far, but then you get far enough away that it's no longer having as much impact on you. So you end up cycling backwards and forwards where being fit, you know, like a to a thing. And you say, well, why do you want to do it? Uh, it's a guy I follow called Peter Atia, and he's set himself out the centenarian Olympics and so it's like, why does, he why does he lift? Well, he says, I need to be able to do a goblet squat. You lose 10% of your muscle mass every decade. And at 100, I'll have great grandchildren and they'll weigh this much. And therefore, every day I lift this much so that at 100, I can still, I could squat down, catch a grandchild and stand back up. And it's like, I love that because it's all future focused. Exactly. 
And it's also, it's a purpose that's beyond himself. Yes. It's the family. So there's a value of family there that's really important because it's bigger than him. Yeah, he's not saying, oh, I want to look, you know, good in my speedos in the pool. Nothing, nothing about that at all. It's because I will connect with my grandchildren. Yeah. Or great-grandchildren. Yeah. You know, because often with goals, you know, we will do it for somebody else, but we won't do it for ourselves. (laughs) Yeah, indeed. Can I pull us back and talk about a completely different... (laughs) We could do this all day. This could be two podcasts. Yes, happily. (laughs) Um, But I'd love to talk about valuation. And Mm. did any of this stuff at all, you know, when when you were working in finance... Were you doing any of this stuff at all at this point? Or was that one of the reasons why you sort of changed career? Because you just felt un, you just it was there, but you weren't getting to use it? Or um, I wasn't really, it wasn't really part and parcel. Certainly being an equity analyst, I wouldn't, I would have looked at strategy and management and leadership, but in a much more limited way than this work allows me. So in that sense, the danger is analytically that you end up looking at spreadsheets and comparing numbers. And for me, it was, you know, and I I did use this at the time. There were two things, I think, Don. There was, I wanted to move from working with spreadsheets to working with people. Yeah. (laughs) You know, that... (laughs) 16 years is a long time to to realise that you'd rather be with people than spreadsheets. Yeah, but I was... You know, without being funny, I was a good analyst. Um, I enjoyed it. You know, I did economics as my degree. I, you know, it's a very privileged job in the city because even as a young man, you know, you're meeting CEOs and chairmen of companies to discuss their prospects and their acquisition strategies and those sorts of things. So it's a very privileged job. So it's not that I didn't enjoy it. It's just you get to a certain point where you realise that actually there's, there's, there's more than this. Yeah. And... I, when I left the city, I really didn't know what I was going to do. I thought it would have something to do with teaching. And it's, and it's funny that I'm, I'm now teaching this sort of stuff and I'm teaching coaching. So it's kind of worked. But that suggests a degree of linearity that is not true in practice. It was much more <laughs> circuitous and I'll try this and I'll try that. Things don't work, and but it gives you information as to what does work. And I think the other thing in the city that I would often and I remember saying it to the global head of research when I left because I was unusual. I didn't leave to go to a competitor for more money. That's what most people did. I just left. (laughs) (laughs) I bet people just had absolutely no idea what you're talking about. Like you're leaving, you know, it's not as if you've got to the age where you can't do it anymore, like a professional footballer, you know, you've just won the Champions League and you're like, no, I quit. Yeah. No, I mean, because your earnings power goes up with experience. Yeah. So... I genuinely felt that everyone was working too hard and thinking too little. Uh-huh. And I do think organisations since then have got worse. I think everyone works incredibly hard. But coming back to that point I was making at the outset about thinking and thinking differently, you know, I often see clients, you know, and, you know, you may have this experience too and, and some of the listeners that when – when a client has to cancel a meeting, trying to get a new meeting can be really because they're so busy and they will sometimes screen share their diaries. And it's so full of meetings and commitments. I just sort of think, well, when do you do your work? 
Yeah. Well, I, I was talking to a CEO this week and one of the conversations I've been having with him over the last few months is about his health. And so we had a look at his diary and I got him to say how much of the things that are in his diary only he could do. Turned out only 20% of them. He could actually just work a day a week, but he was worried about the optics of that. So as a result, his health was continuing to suffer. Because of the optics. Yeah. But the thing is, it's his perception of the optics. Uh, indeed. He doesn't actually know how people would feel. And of course, that's without any positioning around it. And then that might not actually be true. That might just be what he said in the spur of the moment to defend the status quo. But it's, <laughs> but it's interesting, isn't it? Because it ties in with the 80-20 rule or Pareto optimality, if you want the fancy term for it. But 20% of what we do delivers 80% of the results. That's very interesting, isn't it? Is that if he focused in on that 20%, because also just think of the repercussions then, because he starts to trust his colleagues more and gives them more to do. So they're more empowered. They're more in their authority. There's a huge ripple effect from that insight. Yep. And he wants to scale his business 10x. Yeah. So needs to free up some time to do that because he's not spending enough time thinking. Yeah. And it is, it, it is that thinking and you need time away. I mean, you know, if you ask anybody in business, and I have it with a, a, a colleague of mine, we do a lot of work together and we're always saying that in this sort of business, you know, that your best ideas come on a walk in the shower when you're daydreaming for a moment or doing something else, but you're not at your desk. Yeah. I, what I love to do is I, I go to a conference and even if not all the speakers are amazing, I might tune out while somebody's not very good, mm. but almost always the value in going to the conference is the idea that comes to me as a result of the other speaker or the other speaker or the other speaker. And then there's just this sort of 40 minute gap where somebody's droning on and I'm like, I'm not interested in you. And it's like, you know, I have a, a light bulb moment, which is fantastic. Yes just out of the office yes not at your desk and again and i think that self-awareness is really important for people who want to 10 times their business you know the self-awareness of when do i take my best decisions what energy i am in when i take those decisions you know what context what environment do i find myself in when i take good decisions and really hone in on that well i and i like uh, Jeff Bezos has got some good advice. He doesn't make a decision in the afternoon, only in the morning. Yep. And he puts his decisions into two buckets. Can we reverse it or can't we? And if it's easily reversible, then it sort of doesn't matter what decision you make. And if it's hard to reverse, then these are the ones we pay some more attention to. Yes. It's a really interesting point. There's a Harvard social psychologist who's done a lot of work on this called Ellen Langer. And She's done work on um, decision-making in leaders. And the best leaders just keep deciding. Yes. They just keep deciding. In fact, I was discussing it with this with someone the other day. We don't convert the decision into this big thing that we can't do anything about because we've taken it. You know, so rather than it being a, a noun, we've taken this decision, you just keep on deciding. So it's an ongoing process. It's not a thing. Yeah. 
And that, again, just takes the pressure off. Because as you say, if you keep deciding, if it's not quite working out, you just decide to do something else. Yeah. And it's no big deal. And I think the problem with decision-making is often egos and emotion get attached to the decision. Fear. And fear. Fair comment. Yeah. Yeah. How will I be perceived if it looks like I've made the wrong... Particularly in organisations where there is that... There isn't a a culture of taking failure as a learning. I mean, in fact, there's no... In those organisations, there isn't failure. There's only learning. Well, that's absolutely right. But how many organisations, I suspect, we've both worked with that say, you know, we really, really want to be much more creative and innovative... And that's the thing that's going to differentiate us and that's where the growth is, et cetera, et cetera, which is all great. But one of the rules of belonging in the organisation is you don't make mistakes. <laughs> and, you, and, you, and you're saying to them, just hang on a minute, hang, hang on a minute here. Innovation is probably 90% mistakes. Yes. You know, that's the nature of it. So you can't, you can't have both. You can't kind of have a culture where people are frightened of making mistakes. And this comes back to the energy piece, Dom, just to wind that back, if you will, that if there is the energy of fear, it's going to constrict the body. It's going to stop oxygen flowing to the brain and people won't take decisions. It's an animal model, but there's a fantastic animal experiment with rats and the protein from cat saliva called Feld one and so if you introduce cat Feldy one protein into the air, the rat is incapable of solving a maze that previously it could solve because the rat senses the cat protein and goes into a fear state and you can't solve a problem in a fear state. No. You just have no access to creativity. But it's, I, I think about organizations as on a continuum between innovation and efficiency. And so we've got something going, we've got a repeatable process and that just stopped. I mean, the organization builds up, you know, sort of white blood cells against innovation because what got us here is, is working out how to not fail. And now somebody's making stuff up. Can't allow that. Particularly because there's a, a look at uh, the table groups working genius assessment. Those people who are great with efficiency, you know, their enablement tenacity and the people who are making stuff up are wonder and enablement. Oh, sorry, wonder and invention. And it's just, you know, they're at different flight levels, 50,000 feet and down the ground. One likes ideas with the other one likes a plan. They're just different people, which links back to the thing earlier about so often you get, some, you, we see clients where the working genius you might have thought would be the best fit for this job title is not what the working genius of the person who's in the job is. And so, they're not going to be able to do it the way everyone assumes they're going to be able to do it. Or in fact, the way they think they might do it. And they find it, we've, there's a CFO of one of our clients. He comes out as being very strategic. And he said, that is so funny. He said, in my last job, I had to leave because they said, look, we hired you to count the beans, not to be strategic. Right. Can you just do execution? Because that's our expectation of a CFO is execution, not strategy. Isn't that interesting? Because my, in a larger company, I appreciate uh, there's a distinction here, but to me, you see, that's a financial controller's job. Yeah. Not a CFO's job. Oh, yeah. You know, and the CFO, you really want to be strategic. My concern is, is that it, often in organizations, a really good financial controller gets promoted to CFO 
and then can't do it because they're not strategic enough. Yep. And then it can be compounded if they become CEO. And I've seen that a lot. And it's it's rare that a good CFO makes a really good CEO because it's such a different on that spectrum. It's a very different thing because the CEO is in charge of vision. <laughs> it's, yes. It's, well, and it's interesting because I I now work with some larger clients who, whose turnover is in the billions rather than the sort of tens of millions where I started maybe eight, eight or nine years ago. And to get to the sea level of these organizations, these jobs are all about execution. And then they end up with sea uh, level titles. It's like, when, how did they hone their visionary skills? Well, they didn't. You know, they got promoted because they were the financial controller or because they were the head of sales. Yes. And so you look at you look at the team and you go, this team is quite short on strategy. There's no real strategic thinkers on this team. They're very execution focused. And to me, a distinction I make, and I appreciate there's all sorts of um, models around leadership and management, but one of the things that I find a useful distinction is that execution and performance is management uh-huh. and leadership is being in charge of vision and purpose uh-huh. so as a leader you've got to be really committed to the values and purpose of the organization and the vision and, 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 it, and its general direction and that's very different from the execution and it's when you've got those two really in harmony is when the the organization will really, really prosper because it's almost like meaning and performance. You know, what we're about as a business, who we are as a business, what we care about as a business is integrated really effectively with the performance of the business and the execution. That integration is really key, I think. And how many people, I mean, you said you only work with people who are after change. What what proportion of people do you think get this CEOs I think sometimes I think CEOs get it but I don't think they believe the organization will be able to do it or they'll be able to do it with the organization right and I think there is a perception that you know change is difficult you know shifting organizations you know the the super tanker analogy etc and I think to a certain extent it's because a lot of leadership I genuinely believe, doesn't have sufficient awareness of how systems work to make change work. So, for example, there's a great thing about leadership and indeed coaching, for that matter, where there's an incredible seduction into the future. So coaching, it might be there's a new CEO, so I've got a 100-day program as to where we're going to be in 100 days. And then I've got a three-year plan and a five-year plan. And I'm not saying those things aren't important, but the people who are resistant to change, they don't necessarily disagree about the need for change and they don't disagree with you about your plan. They're fearful that their contribution won't be acknowledged because they've done a lot to get to this place. And so we need to acknowledge the past before we move into the future. And I think people immediately in leadership roles look to the future. And so a systemic coaching question, you you wouldn't say, oh, tell me about your 100-day plan. You say, great, so you've got this new role. What happened to your predecessor? Because, you see, with a systemic lens, 
when the organization is stuck, the question to ask is who or what are they being loyal to that's preventing the change? Yes. So they might be loyal to the previous CEO or the previous boss of the team. And if you ignore the contribution of that person, the team will not go with you. I read a great book called Status Game. And what it says is if you're trying to understand people's behavior, and as you were talking there, it came into my mind because I was thinking what the company's done is they've said, how do you get social currency? How do you get status in this organization? And there's a whole load of written and unwritten rules and rituals and reward mechanisms in place. And then we say, we're going to make some changes. And if we don't understand where status came from, and as you say, say there was an old game and you were amazing at that. Well done. You played those rules. You played that really well. Congratulations. Thank you. Whatever that might be. We're changing the game, changing the rules, changing how we get social currency, unless it's explicit. People have seen these changes come and go. They know if we just keep our heads down, it'll go away. And there's that inertia built of, built of experience. Yes. And the change program invariably then doesn't change. And then you get a new CEO, say, and they've got a new vision. But you have to build on what your predecessors have done. And you have to acknowledge it. Yeah. You have to include that rather than he's gone, long live the new king, it's all about me now. You know, and that's the thing, you know, you mentioned the point about ego. You know, thinking systemically is, right, how, how can I build on what's gone before? You know, I mean, we need to change the social currency. So let's do that. I mean, I think we've also talked about fear. You know, I mean, I think that that's the thing for the leaders of the organisation is that you're responsible for creating the climate. And the climate, I think, is made up of, uh, I'm grateful to John Whittington's book on systemic coaching here, actually, but he has these three human hungers, which are imperative in any organization. And that's the need for psychological safety, the need for recognition, and the need for belonging. And those three are implicit. You know, it's a bit like you were saying with the, the social currency, that it's often these things are so deeply implicit that nobody really talks about them or has a conscious way of how, how do people get recognised? And not just recognised for what they do, which would be the efficiency piece, but recognised for who they are, what they bring. And I think, you see, with recognition, I think you could cut your salary bill if you just acknowledged and appreciated people more. I was just talking to somebody earlier, CEO on, a, on the podcast, and he's telling this great story about this guy who came to the US to fund his trip to the US, he sold his guitar and came to the US, met a girl, got married, ended up working in this guy's business. And he said, we, I, he said, I heard the story. So we tracked down his guitar and we bought his guitar. We did an event in the office and he was there and we got him to tell his story about how he got here and how sad he was and da, 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 da. And then he said, somebody kicked the door in and gave him his guitar back and there wasn't a dry eye in the house. And he said, we could have given him money on his bonus, but it wouldn't have had the same impact at all. And he said, people either get that or they don't. 
Yes, and it's huge. I mean, that is huge because that guitar has got so much emotion in it and you're recognising him. You're also recognising his creativity as a musician. You're recognising his interests outside. You know, there is so much in that that is pure recognition. Yes. And, again, that then is what helps him belong because he's now going to feel like he belongs and everyone's got psychological safety because they know that this is an organization that cares. Yeah. And well, he went on to say that they're now approaching about 50% remote. They used to all be office based, but they're growing pretty fast. And uh, he thinks that recognition and belonging stuff is really why they've been able to continue to keep a really strong culture as they've, as they now got remote workers. Whereas, if you don't have that, people aren't tied in. There's no community. It's just a job. It's just a job. And, and I think that's, that's happening, I, I think, a lot with business, that it's become about transaction rather than relationship. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, what he's demonstrating, which I think is really beautiful, is that we're not just employing this person. There's a relationship with him. Yes. <laughs> because if I have that relationship with my staff, What sort of relationship are they going to have with the customer base? Yep. Well, nobody loves the customers. Nobody can love the customers if they don't love the the company that they're in. Exactly. And so if your relationship with your company is transactional, then it puts a cap on the level of customer satisfaction or customer delight or however you measure it. It's just, it's never going to be better than, eh. Yeah. But, and the thing is, then, there's no barriers to entry, because if someone comes along and does the transaction 2% cheaper than you, everyone will walk. Yeah. Whereas if you're in relationship with them and you're kept, you know, and it's, it's got to be genuine, and it makes such a difference. But you're absolutely right. I think these things are really key that, you know, I mean... I appreciate we haven't done valuation. But one of- <laughs> well, I tell you what, I tell you what we should do is we should we should talk about it enough to tease people, and we'll get we'll we'll get back together in the next week or so and do a, do the whole episode on valuation. You know, I think that it's one of those things that the, these things really do drive the valuation of the business. You know, I think it's it's really important. I tell you what, I see though is more than anything, I see when those special businesses are acquired by a big business. I've had my own experience of this and some of our clients have had the same, not all, but some where the big business buys them, doesn't care about any of the culture and everyone who was any good leaves and they have no idea why they've just destroyed so much shareholder value. Well, yes, because they'll have overpaid. Most acquisitions, we tend to overpay. (laughs) And this is a really important point. When I was talking about spreadsheets and people, this actually brings us back to that quite nicely in a way, because when M&A people or investment banks or leadership teams talk about the integration, they're talking about it as a financial model. We're talking about it as integrating the culture. So you might do a financial audit of the business you're looking to buy, but what about doing a cultural and values audit and say, well, actually, we really like you, but our values don't really align. And that's, again, if you're going to do acquisitions, and I think they can be great for accelerating momentum in a business, for plugging gaps you know, in technology and know-how, um, 
you know, I think I'm very much with Jim Collins in Good to Great. He makes a brilliant point about acquisitions where he says that M&A is great if it accelerates momentum, but it doesn't work if it's trying to create momentum. Yeah. And I think that's a really lovely distinction. But to do that, you've also got to be very, very clear of what the cultural fits are. And culture is a key part of competitive advantage. So why buy something and rob it of the culture that you've paid for? <laughs> oh, I know. It's unbelievable. I, in fact, but I was just thinking I was talking to a PE firm the other day and the company they were looking at was saying its glass door score was amazing. And I pointed out to them that it was just average. And so there's even even where the metrics are being used or net promoter score, you know, where people are quoting a net promoter score saying it's amazing. And it's like, yeah, it's just not though. You know, I think there are not very many businesses that have great cultures or great customer service. Yeah. And I think for me, coming back, as it were, to that Tiger Woods analogy, with valuation, all you're really interested in is the competitive advantage of the business that drives shareholder value. Yeah. So as a result, I think an organization really, really needs to understand what it's great at. You know, as I said to one client the other day, well, if you, you know, because they weren't quite clear what it was they were great at. I said, well, if you're not clear about how good you are at something, how can you get better at it? You know, you've got to be really good at knowing what is it that we do that we're really good at and people are prepared to pay for. And we get better at it because, you know, rather than having a metric like the net promoter score, I would just say the bonus for the leadership team should be, how much more competitive are we at the end of 12 months than we were last year? You know, so what have we done to increase? And that could be the innovation piece you referred to. You know, what proportion of our revenues come from new products if we're an innovator? If it's a cost business, you know, how far have costs come out? New product introductions, whatever it might be that determines your competitive advantage. That's what we're interested in. What are you doing to deepen it? The metrics are just a measure of that. You know my view on this. I think a lot of organizations, because of the efficiency piece, they're managing the metric. They're not managing the competitive advantage that drives the metric. And I think we're looking at the telescope the wrong way around. And, and I think that, you know, like the obsession with kind of EBITDA and hitting targets – and I think the economic environment at the moment, I can see it in some of my clients, that what they're doing now, default decision, cut costs. But it's not about cutting costs. It's about preserving and maintaining and enhancing value. That's very different. Any financial controller can cut costs. It's not difficult. Cutting costs and increasing value, that's where the leadership comes in. And it is about value creation. And cost cutting is a one-off. It's not a sustainable. You can't cut your way to greatness. No. And for a piece of client work the other day, I was doing some research on who've got this problem. I was doing some research on companies that entered the early 1990s recession in the UK the best. Yes. And what was found is that they were both defensive and offensive at the same time. And what I mean by that is they were looking at costs and they were investing aggressively. Yes, they were taking money from somewhere and putting it somewhere else. So we weren't necessarily impacting the bottom line in that 12 months, but they were. Yeah, but it's defensive and 
offensive at the same time. I think it's a really nice way of thinking about it, especially when your competitors aren't doing that. They're only doing the cost piece. Well, it also, it's in line with your purpose. Yes. Right. So if you said to somebody like, we've got to close this bit down or we've got to save some money here because we're going to invest in here because this is the purpose, then it might be painful for people, but you can see why. Whereas when somebody comes along and says, we're just cutting some cost out. Yeah. We've got a headcount reduction. Yeah. You know, and then you wonder why people, you know, then that creates fear that then creates resistance to change. You know, and then we blame the people in the organisation for not wanting to change and sort of think, well, you know, but, but you've made them afraid. They don't think there's any future. The colleagues who left weren't treated very well because we often don't treat the leavers well. Yeah. Michael, we're going to come back and do another episode just on valuation. <laughs> um, but what, what is it you know now that you wish you'd known earlier? That you were going to do two podcasts, obviously, but... <laughs> I think really understanding that it's not personal and having this systemic frame that, and just an understanding of how the system I'm in is working. So I didn't take on too much responsibility personally. You know, I think that particularly when I was younger, I would take things quite personally and I'd get quite hurt about things. And now I look back and just think, no, that was just what was going on in the system. And, and I think that that would have made the career much easier, I think. And I think it makes business easier when you're aware of the systemic dynamics rather than things being personal. Yeah, I find often that one of our challenges is actually leadership teams having to have, trying to coach them to have more conflict. And they take it personally, so they step away from it. And if you can create a framework and a language which allows people to disagree and commit, then then we get better decisions. Yes, I think that's right. And that, as part of that, it's not personal. It's be tough on the issue and good on the person because being tough on the issue and good with the person means the issue gets addressed and you maintain the relationship. What books do you recommend people pick up around this topic that we've talked about leadership and NLP and coaching and ego? And There's lots. I mean, I think in terms of understanding some of the things around relationship and creativity, there's a book by Daniel Pink called Whole New Mind. And the subtitle is basically Why Right Brainers Will Rule the Future. And I think it's a really interesting piece for all of us at the moment because I'm, I'm as a coach, I'm very interested in how the left and right hemispheres work because we want people combining the qualities of both. And I think most organisational life is geared towards the left hemisphere. Yeah. And so Daniel Pink's book is a wonderful invitation to explore why creativity, why relationship will drive the competitive advantage of your business. And also some techniques as to how we can access the right hemisphere. Because the right hemisphere is also embodied, so it connects with our values, because our values are heart-based. So... That's a, a really important book to me. I think a staple which has probably been recommended many, many times would be Jim Collins's Good to Great. As an analyst, I love how much research he did for that book. You know, that it's been really... And I appreciate some of them are no longer great, but I just think if you look at the principles in the book, 
that moving beyond the ego, the whole concept of level five leadership. Uh, there's some great stuff. The role of purpose. All, all of that is very useful and useful to revisit if you've already looked at it. I listen, I've listened, read, listened uh, to, to Good to Great again a few months ago. And I don't know, I just missed it, I guess, was the how maniacal, and certainly it comes up in BE 2.0 again when he reads his earlier book back with 20 years of hindsight, how maniacal great companies are about great people. Yes. It's not just it's important a bit. It's just, you know, and um, so that's fab. And McKinsey published a study the other day which was looked at clinical research in pharma companies. And 75% of these clinical research teams thought they were in the top 25%. Yeah. and But the top 1% were like 10x better than everybody. And the top 10% were maybe 5x better than everybody. But the people who weren't in that top 10 had no idea that they could actually be doing any better. They thought they were doing as well as they could. And it's just, again, it's if you put great people in, there's like, you've got that 5 to 10x avail- available to you, probably at no more money. No, because it's just a desire to be better. It comes back to building a systematically great business, doesn't it? Like, let's make sure our hiring process attracts and retains those people who can work in a team that delivers 10x. And we'll let them work and be creative and if you wanted an introduction to systems john whittington's book on systemic coaching and constellations uh, if there's a third edition of that but it's uh, and i do work with john so i need to declare an interest there but it's a really great book for appreciating how okay. you bet you don't get any royalties from his book sales though you're fine no <laughs> it's 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 really not but it's just you know, but it's really good at setting up what the key systemic principles are and how they get violated in organisations and how to avoid that. I think, you know, particularly, you know, knowing that, you know, if you're working with a founder-led business, just having some of the key points from that book will really support systemic health and the flow of energy in the business. Fabulous. Michael, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on thank you for giving us your time and thank you for being voluntold into coming back again to talk about valuation in the future i'm delighted i hope you enjoyed it (laughs) cheers cheers now Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.